What do you tell yourself about areas where you've messed up? Do you say things like, I've gone too far this time and there's no way God will forgive me? Well, the truth is you can be forgiven through God's passionate grace. You know, this week we are in chapter 33 of Genesis and Chris Figueredi, our lead pastor, is here to tell you that if you turn to Jesus, he will come running after you. Here's Chris. How are you guys? Good to see y'all. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, open up to Genesis chapter 33. If you're new with us, we are in a series going through the book of Genesis, and we're in chapter 33. So you showed up at just the right moment in the series because it gets really interesting from here. Actually, it's been interesting the entire way, hasn't it been? You know, learning a ton. Um, But I I just want to encourage you, if you don't bring a Bible to church, start bringing a Bible to church. Uh, and follow along. I want to continually point you back towards God's Word. Because in the days that we live in where everything seems topsy-turvy and upside down and we don't know what's true and what's not true and all of that, guys, we need to anchor our lives to what is true, and it is the Word of God. And so uh, please be bringing one. If you want to flip on your device too and follow along, you can do that. But I encourage you to bring a Bible along. Uh, And again, we're going to be in chapter 33 of Genesis and uh, another interesting story today. Uh, So again, to catch up folks who are are new, um, we're following along in the story of Abraham, or Abram as he was called. Uh, God calls this guy out of a pagan environment and says, I'm going to start over again with trying to bring life and hope and godwardness to this planet that had just become so corrupted and so dark. And Abraham trusts God enough to do what he says and to follow along. And he heads off and God makes him a promise that he's going to have a family. And Abraham, whose name or Abram, whose name means father, has no kids. He's 60 years old at the time, uh, and God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so he just follows along and kind of trusts God. And of course, he makes a lot of mistakes along the way. That's one of the themes of this whole book is how dysfunctional this family is and how many mistakes they make along the way. Uh, And eventually, miraculously, uh, at around 100 years old, Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac uh, has two sons, Esau and Jacob. They're twins. Um, Jacob is the second of the twins. He's the younger of the twins. Uh, he, at, at when they get older and it's time to pass on the blessing that the father would pass on to the oldest child and the birthright, which means he gets double the stuff when dad dies, uh, it's time to pass that on. Jacob sneaks in, tricks his dad into giving it to him, and Esau is ticked. And Esau threatens to take his brother's life. And at that point, Jacob runs and he travels a month's journey off into the Middle East to his uncle Laban's, where his family is from originally. And he ends up marrying two of Laban's daughters and hangs out there for 20 years because if he goes back, his brother's going to kill him. But then God shows up and says, Jacob, it's time to go back to where you are from. It's time to go back to your family. And so last week, we kind of witnessed that fearful road, Jacob trying to obey God, obeying God, but thinking, I'm a dead man when I get there because my brother's going to kill me. And so we we went down that fearful road and how he navigated that fearful, fearful road last week. This week, we actually get to experience 
the meeting, the, the reunion after all of these years. And so we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 33, and it says this, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he has a, a band of 400 men. This is considered army-sized uh, group of people. Uh, Jacob thinks he's coming to kill him. He very well maybe. He doesn't know. He looks up in the distance far, far off, and there's this cloud of dust coming on the horizon, and he understands that's Esau. I may die today. Right, and so he's looking out and he's seeing that. So what he does is he divides the children among Leah, his wife, and Rachel, his wife, and the two female servants. And he puts the female servants and their children in the front. They'll be the first to die. Uh, then Leah and her children next. She'll be the second. And then Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Now what he's doing is he's dividing the family up. This is just strategic. If, if, if Esau comes in hot and starts just killing people, then at least maybe one group of my family may survive and may live for another day. So, so that, this is how he sets it up, but he does it in a very blatantly favoritism kind of way, right? Rachel's his favorite wife. Joseph, as we'll see in the weeks to come, is his favorite son. They're in the back. And this is really important, again, if you're new to this series, just because it's in there doesn't mean that it's good, right? One of the things I love about this book, one of the things I love about the Bible in general is, is that God just said, print it. Whatever happened, print it, good, bad, or otherwise. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean we are to emulate everything that they do, and in fact, not really. I mean, a lot of what they do, for sure, the faith stuff, and we'll point out along the way what is to be emulated, but this whole idea of favoritism is not a good idea, and we have established this through the series. So, uh, it, you know, I mean kind of the acknowledgement that everybody connects differently with different people, and some parents connect better with one child than the other, and that's all good. Don't ever let anybody know. Don't ever show favoritism in those relationships, but Jacob does. And so, and then in verse 3 it says, he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. All right, so... Um, Last week I said, I don't think when he stayed on the, the far side of the Jabbok River and wrestled with God through the night, it wasn't that he was sending the, the family on ahead to be a human shield for him. And this is why I don't think it was, because now the next day he's up and he's at the front of the column. He's the one who will be the very first to meet Esau. And so he's manning up here and to go meet his brother. And it says he bows down before him seven times. Times. Now, it says he bowed down to the ground, and in the Hebrew, which this is written in, it's literally full face in the dirt. This isn't I'm getting on my knees and kind of going like this. This is full face in the dirt seven times, starts off in the distance when his brother's close enough to see him, but then as he approaches, he lays down seven times to show that he is surrendered, he is submitted, that he is he's showing... Uh, his brother, that his brother is the superior authority here. And so in verse 4, it says, but Esau ran to meet Jacob. Now, his warrior brother with 400 men behind him is running. I'm picturing him at full gate running towards his brother. 
Jacob's down in the dirt, probably with an eye looking up just to see what's, what's coming, but fully braced for his brother's retribution. Like his brother could pull his sword at any moment as he's running and just boom, and take him out. Jacob's thinking he's a dead man. In chapter 27, the last thing he heard is his brother was going to kill him. So let's read on. But Esau ran to meet Jacob, and he doesn't kill him. He embraces him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. All right, so this is not what Jacob expected. I think it's what he hoped for, but not what he expected. Clearly, if, as we went through the last chapter, chapter 32, he was terrified the whole way there. He's terrified even at this moment as he divides the family up. He thinks retribution is coming his way. And there's a whole sermon on Jacob's obedience to God because God told him to go back and he faced his fear. And I'm not going to preach that sermon today, but you can spend some time thinking about that this week. Where is the battle? What happened here? Why does Esau respond this way? And, you know, I, I think the answer is God answered Jacob's prayer. You know, the battle happened the night before in wrestling with God in prayer. God, give me favor with my brother. God, may make this a positive reunion, not one that ends in violence and death. And so... His brother is elated to see him, not angry at him. That was all water under the bridge. It had all been forgiven. Two brothers, after 20 years, being apart, embracing in tears, and it's all good, and it's all good. So question is, why this act of amazing grace on the part of Esau? Why, why did he, does he respond this way? And I think, you know, the first, there's probably a few factors that play into this. One is simply God answered Jacob's prayer. God changes hearts. God prepares hearts. God, God can do things in people that we don't even think is possible. Pray. Okay. There's your lesson. Pray and don't give up on people and don't give up on relationships. Continue to pray. Um, I think something else that's at play here is just the wisdom of age. These guys are no longer young men. They're old men. And just be, let me be clear here. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're wise. Can we, and we all know bitter old people, right? But, but if you are open to wisdom and you are open to, to learning and you are open to the Spirit of God, as you age, you do grow in wisdom. And one of the things that their passion, the passions of their youth and their desire for more has been eclipsed by their, their knowledge and understanding that what really matters is family and relationships. There's wisdom there. And I think um, time and separation also brings perspective. Now, again, just a little warning. Time does not heal all wounds. You guys have heard that expression before. But time will heal wounds if we deal with the wounds. If we bury them, it just lets them fester and grow. And I think there's some of that. I, I think Esau has made his way in the world. Um, he does. He's not obviously so concerned about the blessing. Uh, he's not 
spiritually minded at all. And, um, and so he's done well. He's in a good spot. And he just is pleased to have his brother back. And I love that. Regardless of the reason, regardless of the reason, what we see transpire here on behalf of Esau, or through Esau's behavior, is one of the clearest pictures of grace we see in the entire book. Isn't that wild? Esau, the guy who, you know, the book of Hebrews says he's an ungodly, unspiritual guy, shows this amazing, passionate grace to his brother. He is, he's the one to be emulated in this story. It's the clearest picture of God's grace that we see. And, and again, one of the things I love about Genesis is God just says, print it. <laughs> Whatever it is, oftentimes it's the pagan king or the the unspiritual brother or somebody who's not a God follower who gets it right, while the God follower, not God father, just want to be clear, God follower gets it wrong, and we see that here. Jacob, not that Jacob's misbehaved yet, he will in a moment, but he hasn't yet, but Esau is displaying the character of God better than probably Jacob does. He extends this passionate grace towards his brother. He runs towards his brother. He embraces his brother. He weeps with his brother. All is forgiven. It's an amazing, beautiful picture of who God is. Which brings me to point number one. If you got your notes, you can pull those out and start writing some stuff down. But point number one is this. Passionate grace runs. Passionate grace runs. Now, you need to understand something about their culture, and this was true about the culture in Jacob and Esau's day and in Jesus' day. Distinguished elders did not run. They did not run. It was not distinguished to run. It was not proper for them to run. Unless they're running into battle, which is probably why Jacob is like, I'm a dead man. He's running towards me. But they don't run. It's not, it's not considered dignified to run. And yet he runs to his brother. He is so compelled with passion and love and forgiveness for his brother that he runs. He can't hold himself back. It reminds me of a story in, in uh, Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells. There's, there's three stories there. Jesus is, is hanging out with people that religious leaders didn't hang out with in his day. Religious leaders wouldn't hang out with tax collectors or what they would call sinners or prostitutes or those types of people. But Jesus was. He was eating dinner with them and spending time with them and showing them grace. And, and the religious leaders got, got their... They got, I'm trying to think of a really nice way to say I can't. Um, I'm not going to say it, dear, don't worry. Um, one time I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, they're, 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 getting, they're getting all bunched up. They're, they're upset. They're upset about the fact that he's spending this time. It's so hard to preach, guys. Um, because I, if I just said what was in my mind, I'd get in trouble. Um, so anyway... They're upset. They're giving him a hard time about it. And he comes back with three stories. They're, they're not true stories. They're made up stories to illustrate a point. We call them parables. One's about a lost sheep. And he says, you know, the shepherd had 99 sheep, but one of them wandered off. 
And so what would the shepherd do? Well, he would leave the 99 and he would go and he would seek out that one, look high and low till he finds the one sheep. He would grab it and he would carry it back to the, sh- the rest of the sheep and he would celebrate with his friends that he found the lost sheep. And that's what God is like. God is, this is why I'm hanging out with these kinds of people, the kinds that you don't think are good enough. And then he tells a story, similar story about a lady who had some coins, lost a coin, and uh, was not content with the ones that she had, wanted to find that lost coin, cleaned out the house, put everything on the sidewalk, swept everything out until she found that coin, and then she celebrated. And and Jesus' point is, this is what God does with us. God passionately pursues lost people. And then he, he gets, goes into the story of the lost son, about this, about this son who, um, and again, you got to keep in mind, this would not have happened. This is an illust- he's illustrating a point, a son who goes to his dad and says, I know you're not all that old yet, um, and you're not close to death, but I want my inheritance now. And, and the dad says, well, all right, let me make some arrangements. He gets it together and gives him the inheritance. That would have not happened, but Jesus is illustrating a point. Son heads off to Vegas, picks up a few habits, a few STDs, and, uh, and, and makes it. Did I just say that again? I'm so excited. Um, and does everything that would dishonor his father, everything that would cause his father to disown him. And he burns through the entire estate that he has been given, and he's broke. And he finds himself feeding pigs because that's the only job that he could find, longing to fill his belly with the pods that the pigs were eating. And then at some point, I don't know if it was the drugs that kind of cleared or, or if he just had one of those moments of clarity that we sometimes get, he realizes, I'm going to starve to death here. But my father's servants, at least they have food. Maybe he would let me come back and live in the barn. I don't deserve to go back. I don't deserve to be a son, but maybe he would have mercy on me and I could at least just live in the barn and have food because if I stay here, I'm going to die. And he gets up and he heads home. And as he's heading home, it says this in Luke 15, verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled for compassion or filled with compassion for him. His father, you know, the fact that he was a long way off, again, over the horizon, he, he sees him appear over the horizon. The father is scanning the, the, the horizon looking for his son. I believe waiting from the, the very time that his son left for him to come back. Praying every day, keeping an eye out. When will he come back? When will he come to his senses? When will he come home? And when he sees him appear on the horizon, it says he's filled with compassion for him. And then he ran to his son. Distinguished men didn't run. He was so filled with passion for his son that he couldn't contain himself. And again, I think the son probably is like this because dad's running means I'm going to get the beat down. 
And it says his father threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's the exact same story. It's the exact same story. Passionate grace runs. Point number two, passionate grace embraces the person coming home. I want you to notice this sloppy display of affection and forgiveness. With this son in this story, it happens before the apology. He doesn't even get to say the words, and his father is like, you're home! I'm so excited! All he had to do was start walking towards his father. And here's what I know about some of us today. You are... You are here because this is where you are in your journey. You you have come to the conclusion that whatever you have been doing hasn't been working and you got to figure something out and maybe I can find some hope at church. Maybe I can maybe maybe God will let me live in the barn. And you have turned around and started walking home and you have no idea how much God loves you how excited He is for you to have taken that step. And He is passionately running towards you, embracing you, wanting to welcome you home and welcome you into His family. You know, I mean, we think we need to get our act together before we can come to God. And the reality is we just need to turn around and head home. And He'll meet us there. And He'll change things around us and within us as we lean in and head home. You have no idea how much He loves you. What it says in verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He had his, he had his confession, his, his repentance, his apology all ready to go. And he lays it out there, right? And he, and he tells his father, but I want you to notice what the father does. So I'm going to read that again. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Point number three. Number three. There we go. Passionate grace focuses on forgiveness and celebration, not your past. The Father allows him... To, to have his word, but he doesn't hang out there very long. He's not like, well, you know, okay, let's unpack that a little bit. Give me a play-by-play -play of everything wrong you did. No, it's all forgiven. Okay, good. Now, don't get the idea that that confession isn't important. It is. That repentance is important. But God doesn't hang out there. He's not going to beat you up with it. It's not the focus of the conversation. The focus is the celebration that he came home. He doesn't dig up the past. He forgives the past. And that, my friends, is what God is like with us. And, uh, and, and, and back to Genesis, Esau runs to Jacob. And as far as Esau is concerned, it's all forgiven. 
It's a picture of God's grace, His passionate grace. God runs in the story of the prodigal son. God runs towards reconciliation with us. It's all forgiven. And in both cases, both Jacob's case and in the story of the prodigal son, they came with humility. Jacob came with repentance and humility and bowing before his brother and sending the gifts on ahead. It was a nonverbal way of, of saying, I have wronged you. I'm sorry. Here's a way to make up for it. We'll unpack a little bit of that. With the prodigal son, he says it with his words. And God and Esau, run, embrace, forgive. This is the kingdom of God. And I love the fact that God uses Esau to tell this story because it's just like him to do so. You know, ultimately, Jesus is painting the picture of, of the gospel. He's painting the picture of what God has done in running after us, that he steps down out of heaven in the person of Jesus to pursue every single one of us because we will never make it back on our own. He'll run and meet us. In John 3.16 and 17, Jesus said these words, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. God ran towards us. He stepped down out of heaven, left his left eternal paradise, and came to a broken, fallen world as one of us to pursue you. That's how much God loves you. And ultimately, it's like he's running. Ultimately, he offers us unmerited grace. Ultimately, he desires and longs to throw his arms around us and forgive it all and throw a party and adopt us into his family. And it's a gift, which brings me to point number four. Passionate grace is a gift. It's a gift. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you've been saved. That passionate grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Esau offered grace to Jacob, never intending to take the gifts, as we will see. God offers us grace, not expecting us to make up for our mistakes, because we can't. We can't afford it. There aren't enough sheeps and there aren't enough sheep and camels and donkeys and everything else. There aren't enough. There's not enough money in your bank account. There's not enough. You can't make up for it. It has to be a gift. It has to be because the consequences of sin, which we are all guilty of, is death. And God who loves us, God who loves you, rather than requiring something that you couldn't survive, sent His only Son to die in your place so that He could offer you grace 
forgiveness, redemption as a gift because he is that passionate about you and wanting you to come home. All we can do is receive his forgiveness and offer him gratitude. You know, there, there are gr- two, two ways to respond to the gift of grace, aren't there? One is, is gratitude. Gratitude leads to worship. Gratitude leads to obedience. Like, God, I'm so grateful. I'm going to, to do what you've told me to do. I'm going to live how you told me to live. I'm going to follow you. The other way we can respond, and a lot of people do, and a lot of religion leads in this direction, is guilt. Well, I've done all this, and you've given me that, so I'm going to feel guilty about all this, and I'm going to work to try and make up for it. And it leads to compulsive striving to try and pay God back, to try and somehow earn what is a gift. Can you earn a gift? No. And there's no peace on the guilt road, is there? There are many of us who are on that guilt road trying to earn God's forgiveness even though it's already been given. And we need to open our hands and open our hearts and receive the gift of grace and respond with gratitude which brings freedom and liberation and mental health and everything else. And that brings me to point five. Passionate grace sets you free. Passionate grace ultimately brings freedom to our lives. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now what no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Freedom. Life in all of its fullness. It all comes with this impassionate gift of grace. And that doesn't mean we'll get it right all the time, does it? doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. And as you're about to see, Jacob, <laughs> Jacob takes a wrong turn here in the next verse or two. And so will you. doesn't mean we try to. In fact, we try not to. We try to obey God as best we can. And when we don't, we run back to Him. And He runs to us. And we receive that passionate gift of grace. Well, Esau looks up and he sees Jacob's family. He's like, who are these people? And Jacob introduces everybody. And, and, um, and then in verse 8, Esau asked, what is the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? Why all the gifts, brother? Why have you? He's like, why did you send me all this stuff? I don't, I don't need it. And Jacob says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. He's still feeling out as to whether or not this is a safe situation. He was trying to, as we covered last week, he's trying to soften his brother's heart. Generosity is a good strategy for doing that. He's trying also, I think, trying to make things right with his brother. He recognizes that he wronged his brother before he left. And he's trying to make restitution. He's trying to make amends. You guys know what restitution is? Restitution is when you do something wrong to somebody 
Not only do you apologize for that, which I hope you, you do, I hope you're, you're one who is quick to ask for forgiveness, but you make up for what you've done wrong. And that's appropriate. You know, you, you harm somebody and it costs them, pay them back. You, harm, you, you gossip about somebody and, and, and that harms their reputation, you go back to the people you gossip to and say, you know what, that wasn't true, I, I was wrong. You do whatever you need to do to make it right. And that's wholly appropriate with people to make things right, to make amends as best you can. Jacob sends a fortune in livestock because he's wronged his brother, because he's trying to make things right. Now, I do want to say this. With God, we can't. Because you can't, you, you can't pay him back because it would cost you your very life. You can't afford it, so he paid it for us. Again, our debt is sin, and payment for our sin is death. And he paid that, so we don't have to. So anything that we give to God is out of gratitude. It's out of worship. It's out of obedience, not restitution. Does that make sense? With people, make it right. Be that person who goes over the top to make things right when you do wrong. With God, receive the gift because He paid it for us. And there will be times with people where they'll say, it's good, and that's fine. They say it's good, and you're good, and that's fine. With God, He said, it's good because of what my son has done. In verse 9 it says, but Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So he's saying it's good. You don't have to give me all this stuff. No, really, I'm fine. Jacob responds in verse 10, no, please, said Jacob, if I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Jacob had asked God to give him a, a peaceful reunion with his brother, and God delivered on that. And so as his brother is showing him mercy and grace, and he's just, you know, a moment before thinks he's going to die, and he's like, God answered, this is like, God, God's real. You know, like, I don't know how he could question that given the story up to this point, but he's like, God's real. I, you know, in the midst of what I see happening here, I see God at work. And I want you to have these gifts I've sent to you. God did it. God told Jacob to go home. And then God prepared the heart of Laban not to harm Jacob as he was leaving. He prepared the heart of Esau to receive Jacob as he was coming. And now he's got peace on both fronts. And he says this to, to Esau, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And Jacob insisted, and Esau accepted it. So, so Jacob or Esau lets him off the hook. No, really, not necessary. But Jacob is like, no, 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 I want you to have these things. Why? He didn't have to do that. But he insists upon it. And Esau 
Esau relents. And what's going on here is Jacob is testing the authenticity of his brother's forgiveness. Because in their culture, you would not accept a gift from an enemy. You wouldn't. You only accept a gift from a friend. And so in one respect, this is almost like a, uh, like a contract. Like, okay, you can say you forgive me, but if you receive these, we're good. Like, it's, we're, we're solid. And, uh, and that's what he's doing here. And, 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 and I do believe that he's making amends as well and wants to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. The word for present here in the Hebrew is the word for blessing. And so what Jacob is saying to Esau is, look, I, I took your blessing 20 years ago, and now I'm giving you a blessing to make up for it. Wholly appropriate. He's making amends. He's making restitution with his brother. And at the same time, confirming that this forgiveness is real. From here, I love the story as far as Esau is concerned. Esau is the unspiritual brother. He's the one we're not supposed to like so much. And I just find myself liking Esau and getting mad at Jacob. It's kind of like the opposite of what you would expect. It says in verse 12, then Esau said, let's be on our way. I'll accompany you. Esau is so excited to have his brother home. He's like, we're going to travel together. We can, we can do something. We can go walk the dogs together. I'll tell you about all the trophy bucks I've shot while you were gone, and you can share the new soup recipes you got along the way. It's going to be great. We'll catch up, and then we'll go see Dad together, and he's going to be so excited that you're home. And Jacob is like, well, I tell you what. You go on ahead, and we'll catch up. And Jacob and Esau's like, all right. And he talks his brother into going on ahead. But then Jacob heads off in a different direction, never intending to go home. He lies to his brother. And he heads off to, to a town called Shechem. And isn't that the way it goes with Jacob? Two steps forward. I mean, the faith to, to walk into that, to, to obey and trust God, and one step back. Kind of looks like our lives sometimes, right? It does. Gives me great hope. Verse 18, it says, After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. Now next week, <laughs> you'll get mad at the Bible and not me for what it says. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and he called it El Eloho E Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Now, this is super important. One step or two steps forward, one step back, and then I think a step forward. He calls this place, sets up a church in this place, and calls it the God of Israel. The week, last week, God changed his name from Jacob to what? Israel. Up to this point in the book, he has referred to God as the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac, his father and grandfather. He has never referred to him as his God. And at this point, Jacob takes a step forward in his journey with God, and he declares that God is his God. 
It's his God. And that is a point in the journey that every single one of us has to take. You know, I think some of us are, we're on our way back home. You know, we, we've turned around and we're, we're walking towards, towards God and at some point God's going to, to, to run and extend His arms and, and He's just so excited you're coming home. But at some point, you have to choose. Is He going to be the God of your father or your mother or your grandmother or is He going to be your God? Because until He is, that gift of grace, that gift of passionate grace kind of waits in the wings. There are some of us who need to receive God's amazing, passionate grace today. And I want to invite you to do that. I'm going to lead you in a prayer that will kind of just state to the Lord, I'm opening my heart and my life to you. There are some of us here today that need to extend grace. You are stuck because you are not offering grace. And it's eaten you up. You know, God wants us to be like Him. And there are some of us who, like Jacob, have had this moment with the Lord where, where we've experienced God's amazing, passionate grace, and then we're like, yeah, I'll catch up, and we head off in the other direction. And I believe that for you today is the, the day to come home. To declare one more time that God is your God and to come back with gratitude that leads to obedience. And so I'm going to ask, let's close our eyes, bow our heads. I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. If, you are, if you're like, I need, I need to come home, I need to experience God's amazing grace maybe for the very first time, just pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, thank you that you pursue sinners. And I have, I've seen you. And I'm here because I want to come home. So would you forgive me? Would you throw your arms around me? Would you welcome me home today? Would you come and live in my life and lead me and help me to follow you? And to walk in this passionate, amazing grace that you have. And then if you have kind of walked away after experiencing that, and you're wrapped up in something you shouldn't be wrapped up in today, would you just pray right now? Just say something like this, God, I have messed up again. And it's not working out real well. I want to come home. I want to make you my God. I want to follow you. 
Would you forgive me for what I've done? Would you help me not to do it again? Help me to follow you. In your name. There's one more prayer I want to lead us in this morning. And that's this. There are some of us who are holding on to unforgiveness. We are not extending grace. And maybe it's to somebody who has done something to you that is unforgivable, that you feel is unforgivable. Or maybe it's, I don't know. But it's not until you offer that grace that you're really going to be free. And so if you would, just tell God about what it is that, that is you're holding on to. And then say, Lord, I just I choose today to forgive. Whether they ask for it or not, I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to ask you, God, that the feelings would follow my decision to forgive. That you, you would work from the inside out. And that you would set me free. And that you would heal what has been hurt. In Jesus' name.